Hello and you're very welcome to this edition of the IMI Talking Leadership Podcast. You can't see culture in an organization, but you can certainly feel it. In this episode, we chat with Dr. Amy Bradley about the concept of competent compassion at work and why developing a human-centric leadership model is essential to a thriving culture. With disengagement and burnout rife in businesses, Amy explains how leaders can address the developing crisis and bring their people with them. So I'm delighted today to be joined on the IMI Talking Leadership podcast by Amy Bradley. So Amy, so much to discuss really arising from the mini masterclass, um, really fascinating uh, kind of points to come out of it and lots of interesting feedback. But I suppose one place I wanted to start, uh, which is something that really stood out to me, is that during the session, you mentioned that you believe that up to 80% of the working population is disengaged and indeed the statistics uh, support that. And that has real implications for businesses as we look forward. Why do you think that is and how can leaders address that in a, in a kind of a constructive way? Yeah, it's a pretty shocking statistic, is it not, to think that eight in 10 people across the world get up in the morning and for whatever reason are not feeling comfortable about going to work. I um, took those statistics from Gallup. They produced what they call a state of the global workplace report in 2021. And the reason I tend to use those statistics is they're the most comprehensive global stats we have on engagement because they look at engagement across 155 countries. I have to say, actually, the 80% figure, it is shocking, but at the same time, it isn't surprising. Engagement levels have been anemic for some time and they reflect a broken relationship with our work. I think um, in the work that I do with leaders and managers, what I did notice was the pandemic was a kind of collective reawakening when it comes to reassessing our relationship with work. In a way, the pandemic forced people to press pause on their work, you know, for periods of time when we were in lockdown. And the statistics have been pretty poor for for a long time. But I think what we're understanding now is that people, as human beings, they they want three things. You know, as human beings, all of us want three things. We want to feel valued, appreciated and respected at work. We want to feel like we belong, we're part of uh, a team, a department, an organisation where we feel we can be ourselves, that that we feel, you know, we don't need to put on a facade or, you know, have a pretense of being somebody we're not. And we also, as human beings, want to feel that we have nurturing relationships with people. And I think during the pandemic, people reassessed their relationship with work and how they felt about work. And just to say something about Ireland in particular, Ireland ranks eighth out of 18 in Europe, with 13%, 1, 3% of people describing themselves as engaged. And what I thought was really interesting looking at Ireland in particular was Ireland is ranks in the top three 
for daily stress. So that's something else I wanted to, to mention that almost, I think it's 49% of the working population in Ireland say they face a lot of daily stress at work. And one of the other reasons for disengagement is people are reporting working longer hours than they've ever done before. They're reporting higher levels of insecurity about what the future brings for them and their work, higher workload and higher demands from work and home, which, which the pandemic brought about. And this is a very long answer to your question, Dave, but one of the other things I wanted to say is I'm currently uh, just about to release a book on burnout and what we're understanding is in the face of that insecurity, the longer hours, higher workloads, the increasing demands from work and from home, people are overworking to try and prove themselves in the face of that continuing uncertainty. So the issue is really complex. I think we're at a watershed moment where we can transform our relationship with work. We need a different kind of leader to do that one that is willing to lead from their own humanness first, and also a leader who prioritizes care and compassion for themselves and others as much as they prioritize performance. So it's a complex situation. I think it takes a different kind of leadership and, and perhaps I could talk more about that in, in a little while. Absolutely. And yeah, as you say, it's it's an incredibly complex time for so many um, people. And it, it feels that it's it's sort of like um, a kind of a, a middle zone or kind of a transition period that we're currently going through. We're, all, we're almost trying to figure out where the puzzle pieces fit in the, you know, I suppose the next phase of, of as we kind of consider the relationship um, that employees have with work. And you touched there on, I suppose, the types of leaders that we'll need, and that'll be so important as we look forward. And something you mentioned in a really elegant phrasing, I thought, was this idea of the skill of competent compassion. So you briefly touched on it there. Why do you think that skill is so, so important as we go forward? I've been working in this field for well over 10 years. And when it comes to compassionate leadership, I was pushing against a closed door for eight of those years until the pandemic. There's a difference between spontaneous acts of kindness that happen every day. And we particularly saw them during the pandemic, didn't we? When um, people in teams and organizations and communities pulled together to support one another. There's a difference between that and what I describe as competent compassion. It takes a very specific set of skills and capabilities that by the way, we can develop for us to lead and manage with compassion. And one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this is we know that caring managers and caring colleagues are one of the most important predictors of engagement. So, you know, going back to my first point, this has to be a starting point. And um, competent compassion, if I can just explain it very briefly, hopefully, I describe that as four capacities or four skills that, that leaders and managers have. Those compassionate 
managers and compassionate leaders do four things really well. The first is that they notice. And what I mean by that is they are attuned and aware to their own thoughts and emotions. They're emotionally intelligent in that regard. They're also highly aware and attuned to the emotions and thoughts of others. So they notice signals of change in people and pick up on signals of change in order to address that. They've kind of got an antennae of sensitivity, this capacity to notice. The second is a capacity to understand. And what I mean by that is compassionate managers, compassionate leaders tend to suspend their own judgment. They tend to uh, put their own ego to one side and are able to listen deeply to really understand where somebody else is coming from, rather than listening to offer a solution or listening to kind of jump in and give the answer, compassionate managers and leaders listen really deeply to truly understand it. And, and, and that leads to the third capacity of empathy. And empathy is different from com compassion. Empathy is about being able to, once somebody's understood, be able to see things through their eyes. So maybe take a perspective that's very different from your own, maybe even a perspective that you, um, you know, have not experienced before, but you can, you're able to step into their shoes and see it through, through their world. And the fourth capacity is, is the response. And that's the difference between empathy and compassion. It's about action. Compassion isn't necessarily about um, you know, solving an issue. It might just be being there for somebody in that moment. But what leaders can certainly do when it comes to response is leaders can mobilize resources. They're the ones who, you know, have the formal authority and power to make things happen in organizations to ease the way for people to perform at their best. So just something else to say on competent compassion. It's it, This isn't just, you know, nice to be a nice human being. Uh, I, I saw some recent statistics in a great article in Harvard Business Review a couple of weeks ago that said that compassionate managers lead to engagement levels being 25% higher. And actually among those people who are managed by that compassionate managers, they're less likely to burn out significantly. So in my view, competent compassion is the only way of having sustainable leadership in organizations. Right. And yeah, as you say, this kind of boost in engagement that comes directly from being a more compassionate uh, leader. And I suppose that kind of leads us into the, the whole area of human centric uh, leadership and the human centric model of leadership that we've heard a lot about uh, recently, which is kind of related to this. What do you see as kind of, I suppose, the advantages of leaders kind of pivoting to that style? And also in the work that you've done with any, any clients, um, are you seeing that is a kind of a more in the consciousness now and that it's more of the prevailing style nowadays? I'll maybe start there, Dave, because sure. what I'm seeing is, as you said earlier, a kind of transitionary moment. My, I can tell you what my hope is, and I can tell you what my fear is. My hope is that the momentum that was created during the pandemic, whereby 
many leaders for the first time led with their own humanness, you know, paying attention to the emotions and well-being in others uh, in ways that they hadn't done before. You know, because we were relating from our homes, there was um, there was an intimacy in a way to the interactions that we had during the pandemic. And there was positive momentum created by that. My hope is that that paves the way to legitimize a, a more human-centric model of leadership because leaders have realized that actually that builds trust really quickly. It also creates uh, relationships of strength between teams and leads to higher performance. My worry is that some organizations that I'm working with are, are boomeranging back to the way it was before because of pressure for efficiency, for restructuring, for um, cost reduction. And what's happened is that, you know, they've quickly forgotten how it was to, to lead with that human-centric approach. Um, so there's a hope and there's a fear. I think both are happening. Um, I think stories are being told from people within organisations about how they were treated during the pandemic. And we, we saw the best and the worst of organisations. Um, so an example of an organization I think unfortunately got it wrong during the pandemic was uh, British Airways in their decision to announce uh, that employees would need to reapply for their jobs um, as part of a kind of uh, uh, a readjustment of contracts. And that was announced on a Friday afternoon with people kind of left over the weekend to become really anxious about what that meant for them. Um, and, and actually, you know, we can't see culture in organizations, but you certainly feel it and you feel it through the stories that are being told. And so I would say to anybody listening, what, what stories are being told about your organization? Are they stories you'd be proud of? Or are they stories where people feel as though they're being treated as a human resource rather than a human being? And the other thing to say about human-centric leadership, I think we need more structural changes to the way we view um, leadership capability that we, you know, attract, recruit for, retain, promote. Because I think historically one of the issues is that we, the skills that have been, uh, you know, recruited for in, in leadership are not the skills that are sustainable today. So perhaps historically we would have prioritised financial acumen as a really important leadership skill. But what about prioritising compassion also um, and a demonstration of compassion as much as financial performance. So I think we need structural changes to the way we view, you know, what look what good looks like in the leaders we recruit, develop and promote in organizations. Absolutely. And I suppose as leaders kind of reflect on this maybe new form of leadership that's emerging, uh, this this human centric form, um, obviously they'll be making efforts to become more compassionate themselves or the, you know, certainly that's that's the hope. 
Um, is there any one area that you feel that maybe leaders struggle with who maybe aren't particularly accustomed to this particular style that, you know, maybe they're uh, struggling to improve one particular area? Is there anything that comes back in terms of that? One of the main challenges I get when, you know, I'm working with leaders and managers on this is the perception that compassion means softness and actually a misunderstanding of what compassion is. I get challenged where leaders and managers say, well, does compassion, if I'm compassionate, does that mean that I don't have tough conversations or I avoid making difficult decisions? And I would advocate that we dispel that myth that actually compassion isn't just about care. Compassion is also about dignity. It's not about avoiding tough conversations. It's not about not making difficult decisions, but do it humanely, treating people as adults, having honest conversations, being able to you know, treat people fairly and with dignity. That's what people want. <clears throat> and what's really interesting is the research shows that if, for example, you have been in an organisation where you've been made redundant, if done compassionately, with care, with dignity, with sensitive communication, you're more likely to advocate for that organisation after you've left. So you actually become an advocate rather than somebody who remembers that story of, of poor treatment. So... <clears throat> You know, it, it, it absolutely is about care, but it's also about dignity, fairness and treating people as adults when difficult decisions need to be made. Exactly. Yeah. And actually, I remember, Amy, I'm not sure if you know uh, the, the organization in particular, but I remember there was one organization uh, during the pandemic that had to let people go, but they actually actively helped the people to find their next roles. Um, yeah. before they had finished up and I, I don't recall which organization it was but that was a lovely example I think of that just just to see that you know uh, yeah I think so so if we're thinking of the same one I, I often talk about Brian Chesky at Airbnb that's it I think I think it is Airbnb you're right yeah that's right yeah I, I, if people are interested you can look up the letter that he sent to all staff it was 25 percent of the workforce at Airbnb who were made redundant during the pandemic. It's one of the most human and heartfelt letters I've seen as an example of, you know, this, this thing about tough decisions being made, but being done with an immense amount of care. And yeah, their whole um, HR function for, um, you know, particularly around recruitment was pivoted to be become alumni placement support for those people who were looking for jobs elsewhere as a result. Yeah, thanks for that reminder, Dave. Yeah. And you, you mentioned actually, Amy, there, uh, this idea of this, uh, you know, the care that went into that. And that kind of brings me on to the next question. Um, in terms of, I suppose, looking at leaders and them, you know, taking care of themselves. So obviously they have to take care of so many people they work with, but they also need to take account of their own mental well-being and emotional state. And I suppose building off what you said earlier around burnout and the effects that it's having on your upcoming book, what would be your advice to leaders who might be feeling the pressure themselves? Yeah, it's so it's so interesting that, you know, there's a burnout epidemic going on alongside the pandemic. And when I ask 
leaders, what, what does compassion mean to you in your organization? 90% of the time, leaders say compassion is about others. Very rarely do they talk about compassion towards themselves. And for me, compassion has two sides of, of a coin. You know, there's the self and there's others. If we fail to look after ourselves, then we're, we're no good for anybody else, particularly as leaders, and particularly because you, you cast a long shadow and people look to you to see how they should behave. And the leaders that we worked with on our research for the book said that looking back, these, these were leaders who had experienced burnout before the pandemic and some leaders who experienced burnout during the pandemic. And what they said was, I wish I'd listened to my inner voice because all the signs were there that I wasn't looking after myself. All the signs were there that I was pushing it too hard. And it's only in retrospect now that I know that voice was saying, slow down, take it easy, give yourself a break. But the pressure to perform kind of overtook that voice and the overwork continued until it was too late so I would say don't ignore the signs you know at the end of the day it's your family your friends your loved ones who want you healthy and um, one aspect of compassion I so often missed is starting with ourselves and and really Chris Germer who is a, um, a writer in this field that I respect greatly along with his colleague Kristen Neff do a lot of writing around compassion and he says there's five ways we need to look after ourselves physically so asking ourselves okay how am I caring for my body this week mentally the question about okay what am I doing to switch off you know particularly um, from technology emotionally so the question about what what have I done this week that really makes me feel good you know and and this, this isn't a question about work. This is a question about, you know, what, what, what do I love in my life? Is it being with family? Is it being in nature? The fourth is about relationship. So the question of who have I connected with this week in my relationships that restores and sustains me? And then the fifth question is a, is a spiritual question about, okay, what nurtures my soul? You know, maybe it's volunteering, maybe it's church, maybe it's um, time in nature. And those five questions I often say to leaders are a good kind of guide for you each week just to check in on how you're doing. Not to beat yourself up <laughs> if you haven't met them, but just as a kind of more intentional guide to look after ourselves and put compassion for self first. Yeah, and that's a really powerful idea, that, that idea of checking in. And it's something that comes up a lot in meditation and things like that. And it's, and it's also something that maybe leaders don't. Uh, and indeed, all of us, maybe it's something that we can all do better in terms of just, you know, taking that second to pause and re, you know, reflect on things. What's fascinating is when we do pause in our, you know, as leaders and managers, what, what's so interesting is that, that we then become more effective because it's a response rather than a reaction. So, you know, if we can build pause into a day, it enables 
us to be able to step back and see the wood for the trees and actually become much more effective as a result rather than just running at 100 miles an hour all the time. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, just to finish up, um, I'm curious to get your opinion on this idea mm -hmm. of, I suppose, you know, there's probably a better way of putting this, but the kind of the return on compassion for organizations, um, if it's, you know, if leaders can implement it correctly. So you, you touched on some examples uh, earlier on, and of course, we, we mentioned, you know, the Airbnb letter. Uh, do you have any other examples of organizations that are particularly standard bearers on this front? The first organization I'll talk about is Barry Weirmiller. Now, the reason I, I talk about them is because they're actually a, a paper manufacturer and packaging um, processing organization. So they're maybe one of the last places you'd imagine would be truly compassionate. Because most often the perception is compassionate organizations are organizations in healthcare or in the third sector. The CEO of Barry Waymiller talks about um, his organization as being a truly human organization. He's um, Bob Chapman. Um, and he talks about um, a concept called shared sacrifice. So when difficult decisions need to be made, such as the pandemic, everybody shares some of the pain rather than just a few people taking all the pain. So one example is this was during the 2008 crisis. They, as an organization, decided all to take shared, same amount, people from the top to the bottom of the organization, same uh, shared pay cut for a certain period of time so that everybody took a hit rather than just a few people uh, suffering. Um, so that's one example. And, and also he, he talks about care for every single member of that organization, although as though they were a member of his own family. And he says, you know, what would you do if your family were in trouble? Well, you'd pull together and support each other. So this really conscious idea that the organization is a connection of people who, you know, support one another when times get tough. The other organization I want to mention uh, that that I, they're in the book on burnout, actually, because as you might imagine, it's really hard to find truly compassionate organizations. They're called Noble. Mm -hmm. uh, they are a consulting firm in the US. And what I found really interesting about them is they talk about trying to establish and live by a healthy culture. And they've come up with their cultural contract that they every month review how they're doing against. And they say things like in this contract, you know, it's almost um, an explicit setting of boundaries. They say, okay, what do we owe our people? We owe compassion for you as a human being, even at the cost of being the fastest or most results oriented organization. We owe you psychological safety, and, and what they mean by that is the ability to speak up without judgment, to be yourself, to experiment, even at the cost of being a competitive workplace. They owe their people time to restore. Everybody has time to restore themselves, even at the cost of maximum efficiency. And then in return, they ask of their people acceptance of others, even at the cost of being comfortable, because by accepting others, you know, there's moments of discomfort and disagreement and, and diversity of views. And they ask for 
honesty of feedback, even at the cost of self-preservation. I just think they're a really fascinating example of the prioritization of care of, you know, um, what they call time to restore self and a kind of um, a shared honesty and trust, even at the expense of efficiency, of, of being the most results oriented, of being um, the fastest organization. And what's fascinating is actually those things come, those things are a result of an engaged workforce. So yeah, they're, they're the other example I would give. This kind of, you know, rebalancing of priorities around people rather than just efficiency. Yeah, exactly. It's that rebalancing idea that, that is so important, I think, moving forward. And a very interesting few years ahead. Um, Amy Bradley-Owen, thank you so much for your time today. Really, really appreciate it. Pleasure. Thanks.